morning we're in a series entitled Gleanings Through Genesis. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to these guys coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. We want you to hear the Word of God, but we want you to see why what is being spoken is being spoken with your own eyes from the Word. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. So we get into um, uh, the passage this morning. For those of you who are a little more devotional-oriented, and uh, sometimes these early chapters in Genesis can be uh, demanding in terms of the detail, and uh, so we're headed toward more more devotional uh, aspects of things. Um, I don't say that to pacify you or appease you, but um, just for your own comfort. But... Uh, and there's some detail in the passage that we're looking at today, and, uh, but it's foundational. It's so important to understand these things related to our Christian life and uh, worth the effort of uh, really giving it, uh, it our uh, f- full attention this morning and not thinking about Costco or Mr. T's Donuts <clears throat> or whatever else comes into our mind. We'll pick things up in, uh, in, in verse 8, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking uh, in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then one of the verses we'll look at this morning, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And then over to verse 15, Uh, God, as he uh, declares his curse upon uh, Satan behind the temptation of uh, of Eve and the the fall, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then over to verse 20, and Adam called his uh, wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living and also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every jot, every tittle, every uh, precept, every intention behind every verse that is intended to produce something within us of our understanding of the world that we're in the middle of and to bring something to our relationship uh, with you as well. And Lord, we confess that we would never worship you as we do in song if we didn't know you as we do through your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit to uh, minister your word, take it off of the pages of Scripture, and give it a living working place within our, our understanding of life around us. And Lord, uh, give it a living place in our personal relationship with you. And we ask for that work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So for the last several weeks, we've been uh, studied uh, Genesis chapter 3, looking at the temptation and the fall of, of Adam and Eve, and then with some detail at the consequences that have been introduced into the world and into the human condition as a result of that fall. And then this morning we want come to God's answer to the catastrophe 
uh, of the need that has been produced in the world and within us individually as human beings as a result of, of that fall, and uh, most importantly, uh, the, the God's provision of a plan, a means of salvation from the consequences of the fall. Uh, allow me a moment just to kind of uh, provide a brief recap of the dilemma that we find ourselves in uh, the entire world, but each of us in this room as well, as a result of the fall. It introduced uh, evil, and it introduced suffering into the world, into the human condition. Every sin that is ever committed uh, has its origin in the fall. Every crime, every lie, every theft, every murder, uh, and so forth has its origin in the fall. Every war, every international conflict, uh, every heartbreak that we experience, every natural disaster from uh, floods to hurricanes or uh, to earthquakes or droughts, every disease, every sickness has its origin uh, in the fall. And uh, every uh, bondage that, and struggle that we have with sin has its origin in the fall. Spiritual warfare, the very introduction of this, this dynamic within the human condition and the demonic realm was brought uh, into, uh, into our experience by virtue of the fall. Uh, the ground being cursed, the, thes- the thorns and the thistles, what's required of each and every one of us. We may not all be farmers, uh, but the pressures and the hard work and what is required to uh, put a roof over our heads and to have food on the table on a daily basis, it all comes from uh, the fall. Pain associated with childhood, uh, guilt and shame and regret, every death that exists and has ever existed in human history uh, is uh, tied to that fall. And, uh, and the list that I give you, it's I- I- incomplete because we could go on uh, describing the fall and its consequences from the, the vantage point uh, of the mind or of the emotion and uh, from the vantage point in terms of science and astronomy, the, uh, from the vantage point of the telescope or from the vantage point of the, the microscope. Anywhere you want to look, it's fallen all around us, everywhere that you can look. And then worst of all, the greatest tragedy of all concerning the fall is that it resulted in a spiritual death. And us being born uh, separated spiritually uh, from a relationship with God, uh, the very thing that we have been uh, created for. And when you stop and think, and it's important to do that, as we've done in the last couple of weeks, to just look at uh, the mess that the fall has created and to just think about the, the sheer amount of fallenness that you navigate every day, that you navigate in your mind, you navigate in your emotions, you navigate within your body, you navigate in your interactions with other people, the physical world, and, and, and that we're forced to navigate as a result of that fall. And then I think that when we do that, right away we realize that as human beings, we are incapable of delivering ourselves from Uh, the depth of this pit that the fall has uh, placed each of us in. Absolutely incapable of saving ourselves from not only all of these consequences of the fall, but from any of them. 
We have no power, all of us put together, uh, to fight against and to overcome and to overwhelm or to provide a victory over a single one of those aspects and consequences of the fall as we've, as we've just, you know, uh, scratched the surface in describing them. And that's our first thought, is that as we stop and think about the dilemma that we find ourselves in, our first thought and our first realization is there is no hope in us, no hope in us individually, no hope in mankind collectively from delivering us from the mess that we're in. And then I think that thought is immediately followed by the recognition that the only one who could ever save us from this condition would be God himself. But then there's a question even related to that. If you put yourself into the uh, place of Adam and Eve uh, in that ancient Garden of Eden, they had the recognition that only God could deliver them from uh, the catastrophe that they had launched into human history. But that uh, realization would just be followed by another series of questions, and that is, uh, uh, would he be willing to do that? And why would God be willing to deliver them and to deliver us from such a mess? And what kind of a salvation would be required in order to do so? And it would have to be something in terms of this salvation, something beyond anything that we could ever get our minds around. Be a, a salvation that would be something that we could never come up with uh, on, on our own. We can't even get our minds around the consequences of the fall. I mean, it, it just exploded in all directions. How could we ever come up with a solution to our dilemma if we can't even fully understand the dilemma that we're in? We have no hope of coming up with that solution on our own, much less a salvation that would overwhelm our need. The good news is that God's answer to the question of whether God would be willing to provide mankind with a salvation from the consequence of sin is, yes, he is willing. And uh, more than being uh, willing, uh, he is uh, also uniquely able to deliver us from those, those consequences. And the salvation required of God is one, again, that we could have never imagined. We could have never imagined that he would be willing to provide uh, this salvation for the likes of us, a salvation found in the death, the burial, the resurrection of his only begotten son, of Jesus himself. I want you to notice the uh, kind of the unveiling of this this majestic salvation story that's found in Christ. That's what the entire Bible is about. Uh, the creation of man, the fall of man, and then the entire rest of the Bible from the second half of Genesis chapter 3 on is about this salvation that God has provided to us in his Son. And the first hints of it, uh, the first revelation concerning that is found in these verses that we have read here in Genesis chapter uh, 3. We begin with there in verse 9, God's cry to Adam following uh, their sin, where are you? And God didn't ask uh, that of Adam and Eve 
because he didn't know where they were. God never asks a question of them or asks a question of us because he's in need of some kind of enlightenment. Wouldn't that be discouraging? If God came to us and said, listen, I've got a problem, fork in the road, I don't know what to, and I thought maybe I'd, you know, see what you think about it. Our hearts would sink. Uh, if, he, if, if he was in that kind of a place. When God asks us a question, whether it's Adam and Eve or he asks us a question within our own hearts, it's always an attempt to draw us out so that we might, uh, under his wisdom and his direction, kind of discover uh, the answer for ourselves, so to speak. Or he asks us questions in order that we might not be able to answer those questions or he makes us think about a problem in a different way in order to prepare us for the solution that he is uh, then going to uh, present uh, to us. And here God asks the question in order to give them, uh, I think, an opportunity to confess uh, their sin on their own without being uh, him confronting them uh, initially. And to me, this, this cry of God, where are you, to Adam and Eve, it really is a, a very sad, one of the saddest portraits, I think, in, in the whole Bible. And there are many such portraits in, in the Bible. And God had created man for fellowship, uh, fellowship that he clearly enjoyed, uh, that he clearly looked forward to with Adam and Eve, and now that fellowship is broken. I think that most often when we sin and we sin against God, uh, our first consciousness is of what the consequence of that sin upon ourselves. And uh, that's okay uh, as long as we don't develop a Christian life where that's as far as it goes. Uh, and uh, always when we sin, there, uh, automatically there is the recognition of the consequences to this upon myself. But we rarely think about the consequence of our sin upon the heart of God and uh, upon his heart and his mind, so to speak, and, and, uh, and what it does to him in his investment in this relationship that he, that he has uh, with us. And we can tend to forget that everything that we do has an effect upon God as well. This is the, it's, and it's a marvel how uh, the, 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 what God has chosen to invest in this relationship with us, the level of vulnerability that he never needed to offer to us in this, this relationship. And so this cry, where art thou? Behind this cry of God, I think, is not only sadness, but also very much an expression of his grace and of, of his love. I mean, God could have just wiped them out, right? It, right at the spot, not only wiped out Adam and Eve, but wiped out all of the creation that's now fallen in, in, because of their rebellion and, and, and begun all over again. Because certainly would have been justified in wiping out Adam and Eve because of the consequences of their fall, what it brought into human history, and uh, what God knew it was yet to bring in, into human history. He's the only one who has clarity on any of this. Adam and Eve aren't even, they don't even, haven't even begun to understand what it is that they have they, uh, launched at this particular uh, point. And so he could have wiped them out uh, as he could wipe any of us out in, uh, concerning 
uh, sin and when we break his heart. But he doesn't do that. And why uh, didn't he do it then? Why doesn't he do it now? And the answer is, is that he is not only an all-powerful God demonstrated in his creation, not only is he an all-wise and an all-knowing God demonstrated in the design of his creation, but here we get to see he, that he is a God of grace and a God of love in a way that uh, hadn't quite been demonstrated uh, so, so powerfully as here. And as tragic as all of this was, it did allow Adam and Eve and us to witness the grace of God, the love of God, this part of, of God's nature and character in a way that we would have never presumed. We would have never guessed on our own that was, that was true of him. And this is all just the start of the Bible's revelation of God's love for sinners and the grace of God towards sinners. And it's all found in that, where are you? The Apostle Paul uh, wrote of the, the ultimate manifestation of God's grace and of his love. When he wrote to the church at Rome and he said, but God demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, we might as well have been in the Garden of Eden. That Christ died for us. There's a, long ago, a, a pastor by the name of Dr. Criswell, he's very f famous and well-known pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, and uh, long ago uh, gone to heaven. And he said of this scene here uh, in verse 9, and God crying out to Adam and Eve, where uh, are you? Uh, he said, God's call to man here is the first act of mercy in the Bible. Uh, this is the first act of God's mercy in the Bible, and what he meant here was toward a sinner. And it is very, very good to just maybe at least circle in your mind or to circle it in your Bible and to look at that verse 9, and when you look at this whole plan of redemption, this whole plan of salvation that is going to fill the remainder of the book, that it begins there in verse 9, to see this call of God toward Adam and Eve, the first hint of hope from God towards sinners and the first hint of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And here you have the first words of God uh, to a sinful man, and you have God's call to sinful man. Uh, here you have God's seeking sinners, and calling them to himself, and again, uh, the earliest hint at the truths that, that uh, we have become very familiar with as New Testament uh, saints. Jesus said concerning himself, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. All of that had its first uh, shadow, uh, the first hint of it again in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 3. Peter writes uh, of this in his own way. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Now, uh, notice further in verse 15 this unveiling of, of God's salvation uh, of mankind is continued in what is God's uh, curse not only upon uh, Satan in verse 15, but a curse that is very, very prophetic. In verse 15, we have 
the judgment or the curse of God pronounced upon Satan for his place and the temptation of Eve and then the fall of, of Adam and Eve and uh, the serpent that uh, Satan used as a, as a physical means by which to uh, tempt Eve is cursed in verse 14 and then the devil himself is cursed in verse 15. And as you read verses 14 and 15, it's very easy to look at that and say, well, how do we know that? How do we know there's a differentiation between uh, the, the creature in verse 14 and then now that uh, things have shifted and God is uh, talking to uh, the devil behind the creature in, in verse 15? It's a very, very good question. And the single best way to probably to interpret the Bible is to allow it to interpret uh, itself for us. And so thankfully, the rest of the Bible comes to our rescue here in terms of identifying uh, the devil as this uh, behind the serpent here and being spoken to in verse 15. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, and war broke, I mean, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels uh, fought. But they did not prevail, for a place was, uh, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so the great dragon was cast out, and then here it is, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast uh, to the earth, and his angels were cast with him. So he is uh, identified here as that serpent of old. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Of course, as we unpack the verse just a a little bit in a moment, we'll see that clearly he is talking uh, to the devil and no longer talking to the the instrument, uh, the serpent that the devil used. First, as we look at verse 15, God informs Satan that he would put enmity between Satan and the woman, that is Eve. And here Eve represents all of mankind. I'm going to put enmity between you, uh, speaking to the devil, and and to all of mankind. It is important to notice uh, that this is the Lord speaking to the devil. And uh, and notice that the Lord does not say to the devil here, uh, there will be enmity between you and the woman. What he says is, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And why that's important is that it appears that Satan had a much larger goal in mind at the temptation of Adam and Eve and in their fall than to get them to commit a a lone act of rebellion against God and against his, his word. It appears that through their fall, that the devil expected uh, to make them allies in his rebellion against God. It seems that he thought that Adam and Eve, all of their descendants who would follow them, would be treated by God in the same way that angels were when they rebelled against God. And those angels who followed Satan in his rebellion against God uh, were cut off from their first estate. Uh, They were never offered 
a means of salvation by God. Uh, Subsequently, they were left without any hope at all of regaining what they had lost. And it does appear that Satan thought that this would be God's treatment of Adam and Eve and their descendants as well. And Satan probably thinking that Uh, In terms of Adam and Eve, uh, they would have no other real kind of alternative uh, and and would mankind would join him in his rebellion against God. He'd be able to uh, readily convince man that God is now their enemy and and their sole enemy was in uh, the devil and in joining with him. And as a result, his rebellion against God would become even more stronger and uh, more and, and uh, more powerful. But in this sentence, uh, uh, that opening sentence there in, in uh, verse 15, uh, God surprises the devil by informing him that he simply will not allow him to be successful in this way. And we sit here this morning as Christians because God did not allow that to happen. In other words, God said to Satan, I will not let you win. I will save them from your grasp, and I'm going to provide them with the forgiveness of sins, and ultimately I'm going to provide them with a salvation that will overwhelm every other consequence of the fall. And how would he do it? He would do it by means of a Savior that he would send. And now for the remainder there of verse 15, he begins to supply a a description to us uh, of this Savior he would send. First, in this regard, uh, notice that God informed Satan that he would put enmity between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. So this tells us a, a number of things about this Savior. These are the initial descriptions now of the Savior that God is going to send into the world. Number one, our salvation is going to come in the form of a person. Uh, Notice second, that this person will be a he. Uh, You'll excuse the personal pronoun um, in the year 2019. But he uh, he will be a he, and uh, that is he'll be male. You notice in the very next sentence, God describes him in saying, he will bruise your head. And then the number thir- third thing that we recognize here is that he will be Eve's seed. In other words, he will be born of the seed of a woman. And again, this provides us with a very, very early uh, glimpse, a hint at what God is going to make very clear in the Old Testament and in the New Testament subsequently, and that is that this Savior will be born uh, of a virgin. Uh, I think that we all recognize uh, being 12 years or older, uh, it, it may be a little older than that, but that's the age in, in, the, in the sanctuary, 10 I think now, but, but I think most of us who are, are adults for sure, uh, we recognize that uh, women don't bring seed to the reproductive process. What women bring to that process is an egg. And somehow God is saying that this Savior will be born of a woman with no male seed involved, uh, just as Jesus was born of uh, a virgin named Mary, conceived not by man, but the Bible teaches as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ uh, was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child 
of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she brought forth a son, uh, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all of this is exactly as uh, God uh, hinted at here in verse 15 of, of Genesis chapter uh, 3. And then it's made absolutely crystal clear uh, concerning the birth of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, through a, 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 a virgin later on in the prophet uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, famously, therefore the Lord himself will give you a, a, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Speaking of the fact that Messiah would be born of a virgin and then be God in human flesh. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you go into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul affirms the very same truth. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, not of a man and a woman, but born of a woman, under the law, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is why uh, verse 15 is referred to as the proto-evangelum and uh, made up of, of two words, protos meaning first and evangelion, uh, evangelion meaning uh, good news or the, the gospel. And so the, the, here is the recognition of verse 15 of being the very first mention of the gospel, the good news of salvation. Uh, in the Bible. But the description uh, of the Savior doesn't, doesn't stop there. Uh, notice second that God informed Satan that he would be successful in bruising the heel of this uh, uh, seed of the woman, uh, but that he, this, this Savior, uh, her seed, would bruise Satan's head. And so Satan's uh, bruising of this Messiah, the Savior's head, it speaks of uh, inflicting pain and suffering in some kind of a conflict, but that the devil would attempt to, uh, uh, to, to destroy this seed of the woman, but would never quite be able, uh, would, would be able to bring suffering and, and difficulty uh, against this seed, but would never be able to uh, uh, ultimately uh, uh, d deliver the death blow uh, to this adversary that would be the devil's in, in her seed. And even as Jesus suffered on the cross and even as he died, but it wasn't the end of the conflict, not by a long shot. The devil's problems were just beginning. <laughs> and uh, so whatever kind of parting he did for three days and three nights uh, came to an abrupt end. Now, now uh, God promised that this conflict, as he tells us here, uh, it, uh, would end with the bruising of, of Satan's uh, head. 
And that speaks of the ultimate victory of this seed, this, this Savior that would come from the seed of, of, of Eve, the ultimate victory uh, and triumph of that seed uh, of the woman over Satan and over sin. And the word bruise there, as it's uh, used, it, um, it's a lighter word than what's used in the original language. It literally means crush. In other words, this seed uh, of the woman that is going to come into human history is ultimately going to crush Satan's head. And that speaks of a, a lethal wound, uh, a fatal wound is going to be uh, delivered to the devil uh, through, through this Savior. And so it happened. Uh, through Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins and then in his resurrection from the dead uh, three days later. And this, uh, of this victory, Paul uh, wrote of Jesus in the context of the cross in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The apostle John, he jumps in on this in his own way. 1 John 3, 8, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Uh, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy uh, the works of the devil. And uh, all of this is very, very ironic. It is the most fitting justice as you, that you'll ever, uh, ever see uh, as God declared to Satan that it would be by the woman uh, that he had tempted and, uh, and produced the fall of man uh, through uh, that, and had brought the curse into, into the human condition and, uh, and yet by woman uh, would be born the one who would bring him uh, down. It's fascinating here because in all of this, you talk about God's ability to work all things together for good and overwhelm them for his purposes because what God does here, all we know is Satan appears in terms of, of the biblical record in Genesis, is Satan appears already as a fallen being. Uh, how he fell and why he fell, we, we understand that from the major prophets of the Old Testament. But when he fell, we don't know anything about that. And so God says here in terms of providing a savior to mankind that he's not only going to clean up the mess that Adam and Eve have produced uh, in, in the human condition and in creation, but he is also going to at the same time judge and clean up the mess of Satan's uh, rebellion. And important for, for us to realize that when Satan hears this, he is hearing it in the present tense. Uh, he, is, he is listening to this uh, from, from God, and all of this is news to him. I mean, what he thought was just the greatest victory in leading Adam and Eve into this sin, that, that ultimately this is going to end in his, his utter defeat. And then third and finally, in verse 21, this unveiling of God's salvation of mankind uh, c continues with uh, God's provision of a covering for the sin of Adam and Eve in verse 21. But before we jump into verse 21, it is important to notice Adam's faith uh, in all of this. And Adam's faith is uh, demonstrated for us. It, it, it comes to the forefront in verse 20. 
And it comes to the forefront by Adam giving his wife the name Eve. And him giving his wife the name Eve is just huge in terms of a reflection of, of his heart and who he was in his relationship with God, even uh, after the fall. And the, wor- the word Eve, the name he gives uh, to her, Eve means life. And the reason is given to us for the reason he named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And so here you have Adam. He is uh, completely aware, well, at least somewhat aware, uh, of the, the disaster, the catastrophe of, of the fall. And, and when he w- names his wife Eve, it was an expression of his faith that, that due to the grace of God, God would not bring an end to mankind, to Adam and Eve, because of the fall as they and as we deserve. But instead, he had faith that what God had just promised in verse 15, that God would provide mankind with a savior, uh, uh, this seed of a woman, to ultimately overwhelm every consequence of the fall. Him naming his wife Eve, naming her life, was, uh, 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 was his faith in the fact that this salvation would come to pass. And, and uh, uh, his salvation occurs now as it's based looking ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ. He puts his faith in the promise that God will send a Savior into the world. And he puts his faith in the Savior knowing only the three things that God had revealed to him in verse 15 about that Savior. He doesn't have the vantage point that we have of being able to look down through 2,000 years of history and see the Savior as the fulfillment of literally hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. He looks at what God said in verse 15 concerning this Savior, and he said, it's enough for me that God has said it, and I believe it's going to be true, and I will name my wife as a witness to the fact that this Savior will come uh, through, uh, through her and through mankind into to human history. And so began salvation in the Old Testament. All salvation is based upon faith in Jesus. The Old Testament saints were saved looking ahead in faith uh, to Jesus' coming for their, their salvation as Adam did here. Eve does the same thing. And when, when Eve, as we get into chapter 4, and she names her son Cain, it is with the confidence or the hope, uh, the, the belief perhaps that Cain, her firstborn, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of verse 15. And both of them now living in faith in God's promises concerning this Messiah. That's why you're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven. There's no doubt about it at all. But for us as New Testament saints... We're saved in looking back in faith to Jesus' coming for our salvation, to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But all salvation is on the basis of faith and of faith in the Savior that God would send. And, and then and only then, after the expression 
of this faith of, of Adam uh, toward the Lord and his promise, uh, did God provide then a covering for them through sacrifice? And he covered them with tunics of skins. And so uh, this was God's way. Here is the first death that occurs in human history, the death of animals, probably sheep, and uh, something that God did. And uh, I, I would assume that Adam and Eve were witnesses to the fact of the consequence of their sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, and there's no covering for sin, uh, let alone a, a, a salvation from sin. And all of this was God's way of demonstrating that fellowship between him and them had been restored on the basis of faith, but it was also to communicate to Adam and Eve that the death of an innocent now was required in order to provide a covering for their sin, uh, a ceremonial covering for their sin until the coming of, of this, this, uh, this Messiah. And, uh, and all of it a picture, this first sacrifice, a picture, a foreshadow of the innocent who would die for the sin of the guilty, but not merely as Jesus did, not merely to provide a ceremonial covering uh, for our sin, which was, uh, which was what the sacrifices did in the Old Testament. He came into the world as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, uh, uh, the sin of the world. And then not only take away our sin as Jesus has done, but who would then clothe us as God does here with Adam and Eve. Not clothing us because of our faith in Jesus with the skins of animals as a covering, uh, for a ceremonial covering for sin. But Jesus, because of our faith in him, clothing us now with his perfect righteousness. The righteousness uh, that is to be uh, put to our account, is put to our account when we trust in him. And the only righteousness that is accepted in heaven, and that is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Peter writes of it in the New Testament, for Christ also suffered once uh, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, uh, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus said uh, to the whole world in the Sermon on the Mount, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious experts, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is the, the righteousness of even the most zealous, religious, uh, hardworking, righteous kind of person uh, cannot produce a righteousness that is acceptable for heaven only the righteousness that is put to our account by faith in Christ. Paul wrote of it to the church at Corinth, for he that is the Father made he, him that is Jesus who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And with Genesis chapter 3, we have the first couple of what, how I look, like to look at it, the first couple of brushstrokes of this astonishing portrait of this Savior that God uh, has promised uh, to the world. And uh, these prophecies that, uh, that will fill now the Old Testament. 
and uh, as these uh, prophecies are given through the various prophets and through Moses and the Old Testament, the law, all of them as they're put together, one brush, brush stroke after another placed upon the canvas, it will ultimately uh, point us to and, and produce a portrait of Jesus as the Savior of the world from this, the tragic consequences of sin and the fall. And these brushstrokes upon the canvas that enlarge upon uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 include the fact that uh, he would be born into human history as it's added to uh, this fact uh, 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 with, uh, as a, uh, of a virgin and, uh, and then dying the just for the unjust uh, as is, is, you know, given us a hint and a picture of here in Genesis 3. And then later on, uh, Micah declares that he'll be born in the city of Bethlehem. Uh, elsewhere, we're told that he will be born of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And elsewhere, we're told that he'll be of the bloodline uh, of David, that he would be rejected, that he would suffer, that he would ultimately even be crucified. And as a part of that crucifixion, his body would be pierced, that he would be be betrayed and that he would be betrayed by a friend. Not only would he be betrayed by a friend, but for exactly 30 pieces uh, of silver and that he would uh, ultimately rise from the dead after three days. And we could spend the rest of the morning quoting the over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled this portrait of the Messiah that is begun in verse 15 of chap, uh, chapter 3 that, that he fulfilled in his first uh, coming. And no wonder Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. And he was essentially saying to the Jewish religious leaders, you are reading the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament, completely upside down. You think God gave you this book so that you could keep all of those commandments and somehow make yourself righteous before God and worthy of heaven. It was never written for that purpose, not at all. It was written in order to describe to you a Savior that would come into the world and provide a righteousness, a right standing before God that is received on the basis of faith in this Savior that we could never, ever produce by virtue of our own good works. We could never qualify ourselves uh, for heaven. No wonder the Holy Spirit declared the very same thing uh, of Jesus through the writer of the book of Hebrews, as he said in Hebrews 10, uh, verse 7, And then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, uh, O God. And our salvation is all about Jesus, and, uh, and it is all about Jesus in the Bible from the beginning uh, to the end because only he is uniquely qualified to provide us with salvation. Sometimes people think you've got an Old Testament and a New Testament, and somehow Jesus comes kind of randomly and out of the blue comes into play in Matthew. <laughs> it is a complete misunderstanding of the Bible. The entire Bible is about him. And so what do we say concerning all of this as Christians, this 
this Savior that they looked forward to, uh, ahead to in, in human history, and then we look back upon. As we just stop here for a moment and just allow the full understanding of the consequences of that fall as they're revealed in Scripture, but then on top of the revelation of them in Scripture, to feel them in your own body, to see them in your own mind, to recognize that this is what you deal with all day, every day, both inside and out, as you, as you live the life that you live. You deal with those consequences and we deal with them and we fight against them and we struggle against them all of the days of our life in, in terms of, of this world. And to stop and to think about the, the sheer magnitude of the consequences of that fall. And then to stop and to meditate upon this Savior that we could have never dreamed up, we could have never thought of, we could have never addressed our salvation in so perfect a way, let alone produced a Savior to do so. And yet God has introduced him into human history out of his love and out of his grace for us, as undeserving as we are for that. And when you stop and you think about all of those consequences that we deal with and to remember what it was like to deal with them without the hope of the Savior, without the experience of his victory within our lives, and then to realize what he has brought, uniquely brought into our lives as Christians and the understanding that he has and, and will completely overwhelm every consequence of the fall for each of us as Christians until all of this one day gives way to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness uninterruptedly reigns and prevails. And what do we say to that? We say what we will one day say in heaven. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. For out of every tribe and every tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Do you realize the divide, the gulf that existed between you and I ever knowing that? experientially, and ever one day being able to sing that to God in truth, the marvel that it is that we're able to do that and will do that. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. And then I looked and behold the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. And all of us as Christians ought to leave on our way to Mr. T's 
and Costco or wherever it might be after the service, walking on air, walking on a 12-inch separation between us and the ground at the marvel of the salvation that God has introduced not into human history, but then the work of the Holy Spirit that brought us individually and personally to that Savior to put our faith in Him. What a marvel of God's grace and of His love. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it is important for you to realize that you need to be saved, you need to be forgiven of your sins, but that can only happen God's way. Salvation must be on God's terms. It must be uh, not, cannot be done on your terms. No matter how brilliant you think you are or how smart you are or how good that you think you are. And somehow, it was never a problem for me, but somehow this is so hard for so many people to accept I mean, you watch the videos that are some on, online with the news, you know, as the different newscasts are, are given, or uh, you know, sometimes it, you, there's television shows that are given over to these, th this kind of thing, and you see people now just regularly uh, arguing with police officers. After they, they've done the stupidest thing, they're as guilty as can be, and now they're going to argue with a police officer. And they're going to uh, resist anything that he, he's going to do. And, I, and, and just in the pride and the arrogance of our age, so many people refusing to accept that there is any authority that exists in the world that is greater than their own. And you marvel as you watch it. You say, what in the world can mark a heart that will will respond to righteous authority in that way. And yet it's done to God all of the time. And the rejection of him or the demand that now I will not be saved your way and through your Savior. I will be saved my own way. And that is an arrogance and a pride that dwarfs any of the arrogance that we see within our culture even arrogant people toward law enforcement and caught red-handed in the midst of their guilt. No, we need to humble ourselves, and each of us has plenty of reason to walk in humility in our lives and approach God broken and in humility and then to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and then enter into the life that is found in the Savior. And if you've never done that and you'd like to do that this morning, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship this morning. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I could almost wish that I could dance up here for joy at what you've done. The Irishman wants to do it, but the Scot won't let him. <laughs> but our hearts soar.
We are so thankful, not only for the provision, Father, of our Savior, but that you cared so much to begin to describe him in the perfect way that you did, beginning in chapter 3, verse 15, so that we would not miss him when he came. Thank you this morning for our Savior, and we thank you and we bless you. In his name, in Jesus' name, amen.